Welcome to Peaking to Success, the podcast that delves deep into our guest success stories. The highs, the lows, the lessons learned, and if there's any exciting future plans lined up. Talking about future plans, Peaking into Success is proudly supported by Peak Wills and Estate Planning. We're here to support you with any future planning. Long gone are the times of solicitors in suits and ties and dark rooms and outdated practices. We are proud to offer a fresh and dynamic approach to the stuffy old world of wills, changing the way we talk about what happens when we die. But... That's enough talk about death on a podcast introduction. It's time to pass you over to Peeking Into Success host, Mr. Adam Kahn. Whose success are we peeking into this episode, Adam? Thanks, Sam. Today we've got on a well-travelled man who has immigrated from Egypt over to New York in America and now is residing in Manchester. He has taken his comedy all over the world and we gladly have him here for a couple more months before he goes back to America. We've got Tama Katan. Want to know what's happening within Derby's black community? Or perhaps you have a story of your own to share? Then look no further than Majatu, your one-stop source for local African and Caribbean news. With our digital news platform and quarterly print magazine, Keep up to date on all of the latest in arts, entertainment, food, sports, and more. Find us online at mojatu.com. Hi, Tama. How are we today? Hi, brother. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm good. I'm glad that we're able to do this and, of course, get to know a bit more about yourself because, I mean, going back and forth with you and talking to you, you seem like an amazing guy and I just want the people the people that are listening to kind of get that little bit more understanding of who you are and how you've got to where you've got to oh thanks man that's really nice of you to say i appreciate it no no anytime um but anyone that is listening and they maybe don't know what you do or who you are how would you explain yourself in maybe a couple of words to them, what you do and who you are. Uh, I I'm an immigrant first. I'm an American immigrant uh, that moved from Egypt to the states when I was five years old. Um, so I think that's where I'd start. Um, as far as like my lens on the world, you know, is is very much the lens of being an immigrant. And then um, I worked in advertising for years, always as a writer. I think uh, I didn't choose writing as a profession. Writing kind of chose me. I was picked on at school and spent a lot of time alone. And I think sometimes I took out my anger at writing. I would write stories where I was the hero taking revenge on bullies that were too big for me to get revenge on in real life. And, uh, and then that progressed very naturally for me, from my perspective, very naturally into becoming a stand-up comedian. And I've been a stand-up comedian for, it'll be 13 years. In, no, it'll be 14 years in March that I've been a stand-up comedian. And man, I remember the 14th day, like it was a week ago, you know? It's it's wild, it's been a wild experience, but um, I feel really lucky because I feel like I found what feels like my purpose. And I mean, for you, of course, you were born in, is it Egypt? And went over to America, and now of course from America, you've come over to England, so I mean, with the whole yeah. comedy aspect, is that hard to transition for yourself from kind of one kind of country's style of comedy over to another? Yeah. I know that they differ, so 
is it easy for you to kind of transfer your comedy style over or is it kind of you've adapted over time and you've kind of mastered it over the 14 years? Yeah, I mean, I think the comedians that are best at uh, at doing international work uh, aren't great with international audiences because they're a better comedian than somebody else. They're great at international audiences because they're a better traveler than somebody else, yeah. if that makes sense. Like, I, I was a traveler before I was a comedian, and I don't know if you've noticed a pattern here, but I try to hold on to my identity outside of a comedian. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, the way I look at the world and stuff. And so for me, I've always been a traveler. And I think for that reason, I've taken the time um, to do things like, for example, if I was going to make a joke about jumping jacks, I would take the time to learn that in the UK, it's star jumps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, we all have blind spots. And I think in the US, our entertainment is omnipresent. And I think you can get lazy and just make assumptions that I'm going to speak in pounds and it's up to you, the audience, to figure out kilograms. Or uh, I'm going to speak about things in the U.S. and it's up to you to figure out what town in the U.K. is similar to that. And, and I think that's like coming to somebody's house and not bringing a bottle of wine. You know? Yeah, yeah. Or, or not, you're not being a good traveler. And I, I think that's what um, – I try to be a good traveler. I try to be a good uh, guest when I'm visiting other countries and other places and, and be respectful and stay humble because I think – Com there's a lot of different styles of comedy, like there's a lot of different styles of music. But, I, you know, in music, it's really segmented. You could see rock and roll and country. You could see opera. You can see classical. You can see massive difference, and it's very easy to see the delineation. In comedy, we don't really have that. But I do think there's lots of different styles. And I think, for me, the bullseye on the dartboard is that comedy is a weapon of the underdog. Yeah. And that that's where I think the purest comedy comes from. And then, of course, on the other side of the dartboard is insult comedy, where I'm the alpha dog, I'm the bully, I can come. And that's cool, and there's a time and place for that as well. It's, it's like painting. You might have a favorite color, but the best paintings have all the colors, you know? And so it's like I, I love to see lots of different styles of comedy, but the comedy uh, for me that feels most comfortable, and that's my favorite color, is, is Weapon of the Underdog. And, I mean, for people that, of course maybe come to watch you what would they expect from the kind of underdog style of comedy that you try and perform to them let's say well listen i mean if you have purpose in your job like my purpose in my job is really really simple and i try to make it really simple i want i don't want my mom to be worried about racism yeah that's that on a very personal level that's my goal I, I, I'm not trying to change the world. I'm not trying to con I, I want my mom to, to go through life, not worried about racism. And so for me, the way that I do that is I, I know that this, that the comedy is like a Trojan horse. It has to look like a gift. It has to look like it's a present inside the Trojan horse. The soldiers can come out and mm -hmm. say, Hey, you're wrong for judging people just because they're born in another country. But the, the only way they'll listen to that is that they laugh at someone that they didn't think could make them laugh. They laugh with me and laugh with me and laugh with me, and then they find out that my middle name is Muhammad. That, that's what real comedy is to me, is someone making you laugh, making you like them, and then after that, making you doubt the reasons why the people in power have made us feel like we're all so different, when in reality we're all the same. Does your 
style of comedy get backlash because of that? Or do people kind of sit there and be like, no, like, I've come because of you. They kind of do their homework on you, let's say, and know what they're expecting from a show with you. Or do they come in and, like, people are like, or no, and walk out or the heckle you because of the comedy that and the topics that you talk about. Yeah, I mean, Mike, the the people who are not my fans are the ones that I'm most proud of uh, mm. of influencing. You know, and, and comedy is very much a blue collar art form. Unless you know, you see people like Eddie Murphy, for example. Once you get super, super, super famous, it's hard to keep your funny because what happens is. The audience for me, because I'm not a famous person, when I tell a joke in front of a live audience, they it's a pretty accurate mirror. They'll tell me if I look funny or if I look like I'm not funny. Mm-hmm. It's like an honest friend. Like Oscar Wilde used to say, a real friend stabs you in the front. And that's what the audience does. A, a real audience, a good audience, they don't they you're not famous. So that's when your jokes will be the most real. Because if your joke's not funny, the audience won't laugh. But sometimes when you're famous and you tell a bad joke, the audience will still laugh. And that's when you start to have a funhouse mirror. Yeah. And that's when you start to lose your ability to recognize what is funny and what isn't funny. That's like, for me, Kevin Hart isn't funny. He's famous yeah. and he's a good comedic actor because there's a director telling him when he's not funny. But when he does stand up, I don't, I don't laugh because he's too, he's, he's gotten too famous. And so he's lost his, his, his mirror, his reflection is inaccurate. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, with what you said about the whole mirror thing, I can see that people kind of start out in any kind of career and they're trying to kind of get work the way they're like, oh, this is my lane, doing it. And then when they get really big, it's kind of like a people-pleasing aspect. Does that make sense? Yeah. So they're like, Oh, all these people, all this wide range of people want to come and see me or come and watch my film. So I need to please the wider audience. And that's kind of, in my opinion, that's when people go kind of, it's for the money and not for the comedy, if that makes sense. And it's a shame. You need to have... You need to have haters in your ingredients the way meat needs salt. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like you got to you got to have it. You you I I do not ignore the people who hate me. They make my arguments tighter. They make I listen to them to a point. If they're people who are just spouting off hate, I delete and block immediately. Yeah. But if it's someone trying to make a point and it, it's another human being just saying, "Hey, I'm not a bad person. I just think differently than you do." Then I, I try to give them a break. You know, I hate I hate blindly hating someone just because they have a different opinion than you. And I hate judging someone over a word. Yeah. You know, like I feel like society moves really, really quickly. And every time society makes a shift on how we treat women, how we treat gay people, how we treat minorities, it's like a software update that we get. Yeah. And some of us download our updates immediately. And some of us get alert after an alert after an alert saying, download the update, you fool. And some of us can do it and some of us can't. But what we have to recognize is it takes effort on that person's part. It takes effort to learn these new things. And those are the people that you need to convince if you want society to be better. So it's not good if you see someone that's different than you. It's not just good 
to, to make them, if at the very, you might not be able to change someone's mind, but you can make them doubt their beliefs. You can make them doubt, and that's enough sometimes. If someone says, oh, I think all Arabs are terrible people, and then all of a sudden an Arab makes them laugh for 45 minutes in a row, that creates doubt. It makes it harder for them. All it takes is one person that, that's humanized to, to make it very, very hard for you to be, to be a racist. It's not easy to be racist. It's not natural. No. No, I mean, we're not born to hate, are we? We're kind of born no. pure. So when, exactly. when, when people learn that action, of course, it's not natural. And, of course, there's always going to be people that kind of make you doubt because of we're all people at the end of the day. You've got to get on or hate person for personality, not how they look on the exterior. So I completely agree. 100%. We're pack animals. We, we are not top of the food chain. The only reason why we're top of the food chain is because we invented weapons. But we are bottom of the food chain. Even even Conor McGregor would get the shit beat out of him by a monkey. Yeah. Let's be real. Do you know what I mean? We are weak. We are a weak species. And the only way we survived is by being pack animals, by uniting together, by 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 voltroning our strengths together so we can we can protect ourselves and thrive in societies where we're weak. You know, so yeah. we that's how we're meant. It's a beautiful thing the way we're designed. We're designed for love. We're not designed for hate. But it's it's greed that's taught us to be so hateful. Like you get post-traumatic stress disorder from killing other human beings. But you could hug millions of people and sleep peacefully. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. There's no post-traumatic stress for loving too much, but there sure is for hating too much. And I mean, do you, of course, you have your comedy, but do you feel like, of course... You host a podcast as well with your mum, don't you? So do you think that that also helps get the message out about immigration and kind of your kind of anti-racism stand? Do you think that all helps kind of support your argument in your comedy and people see maybe the other yeah. side and maybe think, yeah, it's not all fun and games. Yes, you can tell jokes and kind of be this funny person, but also you have this serious side that is knowledgeable and kind of is trying to make a change. Oh, cheers, man. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the, the cost of people's attention is always it has to be funny. It has to be. And then if there's a message attached to it, then for me, it feels purposeful. And I think that's really important. You know, like I used to work at this boxing gym in New York that I'm really, that I love. And it was a community. It wasn't just a boxing gym. It was a, they called it a cultural fight club. And it used to be the site of the Yippies, which was a, an activist newspaper that helped stop the Vietnam War. It was Abby Hoffman's newspaper. Yeah. And that building became a boxing gym. And that boxing gym took the history and the vibe that was in that building and created a cultural fight club, um, you know, teaching trans people how to defend themselves, um, having a community refrigerator, um, protecting women's rights to use the Planned Parenthood that's across the street. When they have protesters, all the boxers come out and go, okay, you want to intimidate women? Then all of us boxers will come to intimidate all of you guys. It's cool. It feels like a part of the neighborhood, like a part of a community. And I hope that that's what society is going back towards, to neighbors going, hey, we can't trust our governments anymore. We can't trust our institutions. Let's start learning how to trust each other again, street by street, block by block. And I mean, I feel like with, of course, the movements that are in place, of course, Black Lives Matter and of course everything with the kind of 
LGBTQ plus kind of initiatives that are now kind of rolling out. I think people, like especially the when the generations move on, that's all they're going to know. So kind of, I do think we're going to so. come back to that kind of full yeah. circle effect where everyone's just not known for all this racism or discrimination in other ways. So I, yeah. I completely agree with you and I think that that cycle is just going to get better and better because the generations after us won't know any different. We hope. Yeah, um, yeah I hope so. I was going to now ask you kind of what you personally think your biggest achievement is. So, of course, 14 years of comedy as well as, of course, your personal life. You can go kind of any route you want with your biggest achievement because, of course, it's personal to you. So where would you go with that? You know, it's funny. I I feel like after 14 years, I'm going to give you a very different answer than I would have given you 14 months ago. And that's it. I think for me, there's two kinds of, there's two, there's two ways I think of my comedy. There's the art and then there's the business. Yeah. And whenever the businesses made me thirsty, the arts let me drink. Like whenever, you know, whenever I'm writing jokes and I'm writing jokes for me, jokes that make me laugh, jokes that make me smile, jokes that make me feel heard, I'm happy, yeah. you know, but whenever I'm chasing the job and, and everybody's, everybody has this, it's natural, you know, like, Comedian jealousy is a real problem in the comedy business, especially because there's no Google map from open mic to success. And then you see different people um, getting their comeuppance for one reason or another, and you, you can't use them to measure your success. You know, like in sport, it's how do I be the best? But in art, it's how do I be the only? Yeah. And that, that means your focus should be internal and, and inside. For me, my success, quite honestly, the reason why I feel wealthy is because of freedom. Freedom to be able to do what I want to do. Like if I want to, if I want to, if there's a movie that, that there's a film that's coming out today or came out earlier called Fallen Leaves that I really wanted to see. That's a part of my job to to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, it's a part of my job, like to empty my vessel so creativity can come in. I have to empty it from everything else. So from twelve to three thirty every day. I have it on my counter. It says be bored. And that means my phone's off and I'm not allowing um, any sort of input from TikTok or Instagram or, or in the news or anything. I sit in a park, I open up my notebook and I, I think about us human beings and life. And I think of everybody else as like my brother and sister instead of my enemy. You know, and, and what's my purpose of what do I want to do? What am I fighting for? You know, and then um, and then I just let it come really naturally. And it feels it feels human, you know, to 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 write that way. And it makes me think like this is what the philosophers must have done in Greece, you know, and to have that freedom to be a funny philosopher for a living. Man, I, I, I know plenty of rich people and I, I wouldn't trade what what my freedom for their wealth. I wouldn't do it. No, and I mean, you said your answer would be different to 14 months ago, so is there something that's kind of defined your path to change your answer, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny, especially in America, we've got this real, especially as a New Yorker, we've got this real hustle, hustle, hustle mentality. And I think, you know, this is a very common thing for anybody chasing their dream, 
it's that you you're so focused on the finish line that sometimes you don't stop to turn around and look back at all that you've accomplished. Yeah. You know, like I try to do this thing every year for New Year's around New Year's time where I write down what are the things that I accomplished this year, because it's too easy to go from this year to the next and just go, what's next, what's next, what's next. Yeah. It's like running a marathon without drinking water. Like you should stop and be kind to yourself and tell yourself, Hey, wow, look at all the stuff that I've done. And, and by doing that and acknowledging it, acknowledging it and being thankful for it, been over the moon about being where I'm at right now. So as long as you're still just making a little bit of forward progress, that's the goal, man. And that's when I changed. Like, I feel like what I've realized is the career that I have right now is the career that I would have killed for when I started. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the career that I said, this would have made me quit a day job if I have this level of success. And I'm nowhere near famous. I'm nowhere near what I envisioned the finish line would be, but fuck it if I'm not happy. And fuck it if I don't feel like I've definitely achieved something and I want to pat myself on the back and be grateful for what I have right now and the fans that I have right now and the freedom that I have right now. And, the, you know, I, I've seen more of the world than I think 99% of the people have. Yeah. And that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Telling jokes, you know, <laughs> that's it. And I mean, people don't understand. Well, I mean, in a sense, the grind that comedians have, they don't kind of just do one thing and kind of, Oh, the famous have got this fan base and everything. You've, as you've said, fourteen years, and you've got to a place now in the past fourteen months where you can kind of think, "I'm doing it for kind more like yourself now." You're not trying to grind to get to the next level to the next level. You're in a happy place, but of course, that comedy has taken well thirteen years to get to a place where you're like, yeah, I want to reflect and not kind of go next accolade, next accolade, next accolade, which is nice. And a lot of people don't get to that level in life. They, they're always striving, which is a shame because when will they ever look back and yeah. enjoy what they've kind of, for yourself, with the kind of art form aspect, what you produced and what you kind of, made for yourself which is which is nice and i mean it follows nicely onto my next question of if you could go back let's say to the start of your comedy journey is there one piece of advice that you would give your younger self which you now know now oh 100 percent is that um and jerry seinfeld said this i saw it on an episode of comedians in cars and i'll never forget it and they asked him, they're like, hey, you make, you're a billionaire. You have ridiculous money and are a multi, multi, multi millionaire, a hundred millions air. <laughs> they're like, what motivates you? And you still get up every day and you write jokes. And he goes, yes, I do. And they're like, why? What motivates you? You've already achieved everything. Because I don't do this because I want to achieve something. I do it because I love it. And that's what your fuel should be. It should be love. Because if your fuel is anything else, it's like, it's like using nitrous instead of gas. It'll give you a quick burst, but then it'll blow up your engine and you'll be on the side of the road broken down. Yeah. And he goes, in his career, he's seen people that did it because they love comedy. Whether they succeeded or not, they, they would keep doing it because they love comedy. And that's the reality of my situation. Comedy isn't my job. It's the air I breathe. 
I could, I can't stop. I wouldn't feel normal. I'd feel weird if I wasn't able to perform comedy. I, w- I would do it for free, but that's my fuel. And if I had times in my career, where my fuel changed and my fuel was, I'll show you. And a little bit of that is okay, but man, uh, I know some other comics where that was their main fuel and they're not around anymore. That, that's the one, love is the best fuel in the world. It's better than solar power. It'll make, it'll go forever and ever and ever. It's stronger than steroids and it lasts longer than any green energy. Just love what you do and you will, you will achieve every goal that, you, that you're capable of if you do it with love. Has that always been kind of your outlook or kind of has that changed? No. <laughs> oh, no. I was just, oh, man. I mean, I grew up, my dad was a professional boxer and my, okay. so was my grandfather. I, I was a competitive athlete. When I got into comedy, my mentality was, I was so competitive. But comedy takes a long time. It's a craft. It takes at least 10 years to find your voice. At least. Yeah. Minimum. Even if you're brilliant. I've seen people who found their voice before and, um, and eventually they burn out. There, there, there's not a lot of the majority of comedians. It takes at least 10 years. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm, wait, what was the original question? I spaced out. For the <laughs> it's, okay. um, it's about, of course, kind of your outlook and kind of how oh. you like love has that kind of been the, outlook That's in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. I think in the beginning I was chasing, 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 but because comedy takes so long, there's about, I think about six or seven years in, it starts to thin out. A lot of people that you started with start to disappear. Um, the pandemic was a good thing for that. Like in the sense that people had an easy exit, because I do think there's some people that get in careers, they chase their dreams. And then sometimes they just feel stuck. Like I can't quit. I can't quit now. But for me, it was a conscious decision at that point. Like, okay, if I'm going to keep doing this, I have to do it because I love it. And if the money comes, if the success comes, great. But if it doesn't, um, I still love this. And ironically, that's what you need to actually succeed. Yeah. Is you, is you need to love it so much that you would keep doing it even if you couldn't succeed. No, that, that's a good point. And I mean... For anyone that's trying to break into comedy, what would you deem the best kind of route is, of course, people may be like, yeah, I want to do it, but kind of they're frightened with the whole kind of gong shows and stuff like that. Or do you think that's the character building they need to kind of develop to be kind of in the art form of comedy? Well, I, I don't think there's any one rule or any one way. So if, if um, you know, the gong show is not your vibe, don't don't go to gong show. You know, there's a guy named Gary Shandling who's like one of the greatest comedians ever. And he openly spoke in a documentary about how the comedy store in L.A. was where everybody went to pursue their dreams. But he never felt comfortable there. And so you don't have to do it the way that everybody else does it, especially now with social media. You know, find your voice, yeah. love what you do and you know, and go from there. Like is the best piece of advice I ever got is always look for the truth. And and that's, that's what the greatest comedy is about. If it, you know, some people, their goal is just to be funny and you can learn the craft of being funny from there's great books out there that will teach you the craft. But then there's some people that really want to go for it to be the best they can possibly be. And for those people, my advice would be always seek out the truth in your writing. 
the truth will always help you find your way to the funny. No, I like that. And I mean, people should take kind of wisdom off you because, of course, you're, you're basically speaking since a lot of comedians won't have the, like, time to kind of be so honest with their answer. People will just basically be like, oh, yeah, this is, this is a good thing or this worked for me where you kind of change the script and say, yeah, you need to find your kind of route and everything kind of happens for a reason, doesn't it? So, yeah, no, that's a nicer thing. And you're not, people are then not pressuring themselves and that can put people off as well. People could be amazing, but I put a bar one event and they're like, oh no, that's how everyone else made it. So then they're like, nah, leave it. And we could be missing out on so much talent because of that. Yeah, 100%, man. And dude, I'll tell you, I'm saying a lot of this stuff and it may sound like I'm a little bit like a hippie or um, spiritual or whatever, or maybe this LA accent makes it sound like I'm not a workhorse. Nobody works harder than me. I don't know anybody that works harder than me. I know people that work as hard, but I don't know anybody that works harder. And it's because my fuel is love. That's why. I, I will do, I was in New York, I could do 10 shows in a night, and the next morning I'm like, let's go. Let's go. And, I, and I'll tell you, I've been with comedians who are 20 years younger than me, and they struggle to keep up. Because my, 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 my fuel was pure. And when you love something, there's always room for dessert, man. Always room. And I, I do not get tired. So it's like, don't, don't, um, for those, for anybody that's out there that's listening to this, that might be like a fan of some of these hardcore guys are like, wake up at 5am, do an ice bath, do this, do that. You will, just because my fuel is love, you will not outwork me. It won't happen. It won't happen. I'm an immigrant and from New York. (laughs) So the stuff that I've witnessed in terms of hard work, my definition of hard work is real high. But it's but I don't do it when I'm miserable. No. I, I trust my gut I, because it's art. It's not it's not a it's a blue collar art form in the sense that you have to work hard to to find your inspiration. But it is still about inspiration and it is still about art and it is still about you know tapping into your feelings, which is even more rare for a man than a woman to speak openly and speak honestly. It's even more rare. So. I think it's a beautiful thing if, like, while you're chasing your dream, you still appreciate and are grateful for the view along the way. The pursuit is really where the happiness is. 100%. And, I mean, with you and you said about the work thing, every every day where I've tried to speak to you to try and organise this, you've been like, yeah, I can't do evenings. I've got a show in the evenings yeah. or kind of... You're, all, you're kind of moving on to the next one. You're, tra- you're even travelling away from where you're based now to find yeah. more shows and kind <laughs> yeah. of you're you're always trying to find a show so you can kind of share your art form with everyone. I mean, for people that are trying to find what you're doing now, where <laughs> where will you find them? I mean, I assume you've got a list as long as you're on, but kind of what's the the kind of shows that you've got, what people may be able to go to, or have you got something else that you're kind of working on in the background that people can kind of keep up yeah. with? 
Yeah, I mean, Instagram is the best place to see me because I, I, I'll post everything there. It's like a central hub. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's at Tamercat. So it's T-A-M-E-R-K-A-T. Um, and of course, there's my, my stand-up um, is, you know, every night. I'm up every night. Um, right now, I'm in the UK until January. Then I'm going to be back in New York okay. for a few months. Basically, the way my calendar goes is I'm in the UK and, and Europe about four months a year. And then, uh, but New York is going to be my home base. And, um, yeah, so stand up, um, in New York, all around the UK, all around Europe. Um, and then, uh, tons of new stuff that's coming out from collaborations I'm doing with like some filmmaker friends in New York. So we're going to do, um, social media content, but it's a little bit more cinematic. I think it's like kind of the next level we've been waiting to like sort of, um, uh, aligned superpowers um, with filmmaking friends. So I got, I'm really excited about some of the short film project I have got coming up and, um, and some new social media uh, projects I've got coming up that should all be coming out by end of January. Um, and I'm, I'm doing Glastonbury this year. So mm-hmm. I'll be at some of the big music festivals. Um, and there's a big festival in Austria, um, Snowbomb that I'm doing and altitude as well. So yeah, social media is the best place. I'll be doing a, a bunch of stuff around the UK and around the US too. Nice. I mean, you're very busy, so people should be able to catch you. If they can't catch you on a specific date, they'll be able to catch you the next night. Or oh, the next for sure. <laughs> so that's good. Definitely. Um, Definitely. And uh, even when I'm not working, I'm at an open mic trying new material. Oh, nice. To God. Yeah, I'll be like in some dingy dive bar with four people <laughs> sitting at the bar working on new material. But that, yeah, but that's how night. you're developing, isn't it? So you're always yeah, exactly. working on new stuff. And I mean, that's how people can maybe see you one month and then the sure. next month it's a completely different show. So it's worth trying to keep up with you and trying to watch you and it's never the same. So that's good. Yeah. Um, yeah, <laughs> I've got some quick fire questions for you. They're okay. they're they're easy, but of course it's just so people maybe see more of your personality, see kind of how you tick and what you choose for these options. So, okay, the the first one is if you could sum up yourself with one song, what would you choose? Oh man. <laughs> And I think Lou Reed in 70s New York City was the king of that. So for me, that song, Walk on the Wild Side, is definitely, probably maybe. Also, Patti Smith's song, Gloria. She goes, Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. <laughs> like, I love music like that. That just makes me go, oh, that's such a powerful sentence, you know? You're, you're very, what I can gain from that is you're very look at the lyrics and kind of the lyrics meaning. Sure. It's how you connect, not just like I can imagine that you're not in the like in the car and you're driving or you're traveling and you're just like listening and going oh that's all right that's catchy you're kind of in-depth analyzing it which I think is so much better and I mean you've chosen songs with meaning to you and that's the main thing and people can kind of see how you work as a person from your songs that's what I reckon and that's why I like to ask people because you can kind of gain what a person's like as well as the genre they like and how they tick. That's why I like asking the question. Totally. 
Yeah, I think that's a great question. I mean, even in Japan, there was this dating app for a while that would match you up by your musical playlist. Oh, really? You couldn't even you couldn't even see each other's face. I thought that was a really interesting concept because I think your musical taste says so much about you. You're uh, right. I agree. Yeah. No, not. I mean, with the Japan thing, that just it's something different, and people are trying all different things at the moment. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I I still enjoy the shit out of music, sitting in a car. And not listening to lyrics as well, but I think because I'm a writer, it's almost like being a sommelier of storytelling, yeah. where somebody else might say, "Hey, this glass of wine tastes great," but I'll I'll be interested in saying, "Hey, where do the grapes come from, and what type, and and what was the region that it's from?" But that same sommelier can also be like, "Oh my God, it's summer, it's gorgeous, and oh, this wine just tastes good too." You know, so I can turn it off as well. <laughs> um, my next question is. Um... So you have venues that you perform in every night. Is there one that kind of sticks out to you that's kind of when you know that you're performing there, that's kind of your go-to venue and you feel at home there and you feel like you can just be who you want and let kind of the comedy run out of you? Mm. I I think in the UK, um, I feel like that at hot water comedy club i feel like that at laughter house in liverpool i feel like that at a comedy store in london um and then like uh and then new york new york comedy club um uh, broadway comedy club danger fields when it was open um uh, the cellar fat black pussycat um there's like staple clubs um in certain places where I really feel at home, but it's usually it's regions to me. Like for me, it's the, it's the, it's the, it's the village in New York. It feels like that, not just one club, but when I'm in that area, I feel like, yeah, it's almost like, uh, it's almost like walking onto a basketball court and going, okay, this feels like home. There's going to be other players on there too, that make, make it feel like home. You know what yeah. I mean? No, and I think the, the West village in New York, uh, or Greenwich village in New York, um, the London scene, the the scene in the north of England, those are the three that make me feel like home. It's a it's a, a dream venue that you'd want to perform at, which you haven't already. Where I haven't already. Yeah. Um, Madison Square Garden, of course. Go big or go home, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Let's go as big as you can. Yeah, <laughs> and I actually recently had a friend who started performing there, and so proud of him. I, I just I, to watch people's careers blow up. I think that's the other thing. I think that's a good gauge of knowing when the pursuit of your dream is healthy or when it's not healthy. It's when you're, when someone you genuinely care about in your business succeeds, how do you feel about it? And if it makes you happy, then you're, you're doing well, yeah. right? But if it makes you angry, if it makes you jealous, a little bit of that is normal. But you got to get to the. You have to work through that because that's that's not a good thing. It's not good to be jealous of people that you love. So it made me feel good. One that he achieved that goal, and two that I, that I had nothing but like just joy for him and happiness for him because I because I witnessed the sweat to yeah. get there. No, I like that, and I mean it shows again the type of person you are. Is you are not just self sufficient and focusing on yours you're looking at the people around you and the people you've kind of come into contact with oh. and liking and watching their story progress and kind of 
being their cheerleader and backing them and kind of spurring them on as well, which everyone kind of needs to develop. If you don't have them positive people around you, that's going to sometimes make you feel more negative because you don't have the kind of influence from people kind of in your corner, which you need. 100%. Comedy is like boxing where it's deceptive. It looks like it's a one-person job. It's not. It is not. If you look at any famous comedian, they graduate in classes, right? <laughs> Louis C.K. is friends with Chris Rock. Chris Rock is friends with Chappelle. Chappelle is friends with Bill. They all know each other, and they all have stories of when one of them was living out of their car, when another one was crashing on their couch, when Sarah Silverman let them crash on their couch. They graduate in classes because comedy, all creativity, I, I don't care how original you think you are, every creative act is a collaboration. Yes. Whether that collaboration happened with eyes wide open when you're sitting with a partner across the table from you or happened because you were walking on the street and you saw an old man do something silly with an umbrella and it made you write a joke in a different way or something angered you and it made you write something or, or, or made you think it was weird or sad or whatever, whatever elicited emotion, man, every, everything you write is a, is a counterpunch to something you felt. And so you, you need the people around you, especially people you admire, especially people that you might look at as competitors. This is uh, it's an art. It's not a competition. And if somebody else succeeds, that doesn't stop you from succeeding. It, it, in actuality, it should help you succeed yeah. because it gives you a clear, uh, a clear another path that somebody else used another way. And you could be like, oh, I like the way he did that. I don't like the way he did that. And how do I keep creating my path? No, amazing. And I mean your analogies of how you connect it to boxing, <laughs> everything links the two and it. I just think people need that kind of distinct kind of, there's something in everything that can be linked together and people don't have to see it as kind of individual boxes and kind of everything should be connected in one, shape, one way, shape or form, which people need to make it look more achievable to them. I think anyway. Yeah. Um, I think com community is, if you ask me what the word for success is in, in the next 10 years, I'd tell you it's community. Yeah. Like every generation gives a product to society based on their experience of the things that were happening around them when they were maturing. So my generation was Gen X. We had no war. We had no Columbine, no 9-11, no economic distress, no terrorism, none of that. We were afraid of nothing. So my generation's product was extreme sports. I don't need anybody, and I'm not afraid to die. Yeah. And then the generation, millennials, and this current generation, Columbine, 9-11, terrorism, war, loss of faith in our trusted institutions, and the product they're most known for, social media. Yeah. All my friends with me all the time. It's community. And if you look at all the biggest problems we have as human beings – it's been solved by community. When taxi drivers ripped you off, Uber became the biggest transportation yeah. company, even though they don't own a single car. It's us trusting each other instead of big, a big company. The biggest hotelier is Airbnb. They don't own a single hotel. Mm -hmm. It's us trusting each other instead of a brand, right? Even the way people work out now, right? It's CrossFit. We work out in groups. So yeah. like this generation's solution for success has been community-based all the time. 
all it's community. Whenever the world gets starts to treat human beings badly, look at the way all the governments are treating us badly. It's ourselves that we look to for solutions. I, I think community is going to keep being a big word for the next who knows how long. But we we've been looking to each other to solve problems that governments have been creating. Hundred percent, and I mean togetherness is how people get by. People see, oh, if I'm in a bad situation, oh, they look around, oh, people are suffering worse than me or the same as me. So then people know, oh, I can still continue and it's not the end of the line or it's not kind of a worry. So no, 100% I agree. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you kind of the last question. Of course, you spent quite a bit of time in UK, especially up north, is there kind of a gem that you'd say that if someone came to you and said, oh, show me one place it might make you feel happy or it kind of brings back an emotion or you just want to show someone because of its beauty, where would you take them? Oh, man, there's so many different places. Like, I think, um, okay, Specifically to the UK, I would take them to this park in Manchester. It's not necessarily the most beautiful park, but it is a, it is a place that made, that made me um, see a beautiful thing. It was a bench in this random park, and there's a sign on the bench, and it said, um, if you want someone to chat with, sit here. Yeah. And I just thought that was such a beautiful thing. You know, like I, I think togetherness is like the N word for governments. Like they, they hate us getting together. They hate us being kind to each other. They hate us uniting with each other because that's when we become scary for them. Yeah. 100%. You know, and this idea that someone wrote had the had the empathy to be like, hey, people get lonely, and if if you if you want a stranger to come up and talk to you, sit on this bench and. And I was curious. So I, I walked down at the end of the park and I just kind of sat there for a while at a different bench. And I saw an old man sit down and I saw people like once every 30 minutes stop and have a chat with him. Yeah. I, just, I thought that was the most beautiful thing. And then the, the really cool thing is he got in this uh, electric wheelchair to like drive away. But I think because of the weather, it was fully covered, you know, so it was yeah. like a wheelchair and a cover. But on the front of his wheelchair, as he was riding towards me, was like... A, a picture of a really pretty girl with giant boobs. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was the most ridiculous thing, but it was really cool to see an old man that was still like, had like his, um, he was like a little kid a little bit, you know? That's, a, that's what I, you, I need. That, you need. You need yeah, some kind keeps of you young. burst of joy and people just showing, yeah, at any age, you can have some happiness and have some joy in your way. Yeah, and he wasn't a pervert about it. It was it was a tasteful it was a tasteful picture. It was more of a cheeky picture than a sexy picture. No, nice. Um, yeah. Thank you for coming on. Sure, and I mean, I hope that people will listen to this and get to know you more and see that it's not one route to success as you've proven no that with how you've spoken. Um, just yeah. again for people that may have missed it when you said how they can find you. Will you just say how they can find you again? So Sure. The best place is um, Instagram. It's Tamarcat. Yeah. It's spelled T-A-M-E-R-K-A-T. 
Um, or my website is tamerkatan.com. Yeah. And it's T-A-M-E-R-K-A-T-T-A-N. And come to a show because live is the best way to see stand-up comedy. 100%. Live is the best. But no, thank you. You've been a pleasure Thanks. to have. And you too. Thanks amazing. for being diligent. I know I've been tough to get a hold of. Oh so no, it's it's been worth it. So thank you. Okay, I'm glad. <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of Peeking Into Success podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've listened to today, and would like to listen to more, go and check out the previous episodes on our channels, and make sure you follow the page as well to keep up to date with the new exciting episodes that we've got upcoming for the rest of the year.